Well, the thing is, um, there was a double uh, equation, my age and my uh, romantic ambitions. I don't know how women do it, but I mean, waking up every morning next to someone I don't like because I want to have children that at some point you won't like either is, <laughs> is a lot of not likes. <laughs> Hi everyone, and welcome to What I Did Next, a new podcast series from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad, your host. In this show, we'll be talking to inspirational guests about those moments in life when you're faced with a crossroads and have to decide which way to go. Do you choose the well-worn shore route or do you jump off the deep end and hope it will all work out? Our guests have all confronted this dilemma and we discuss how this happens and how it changed the course of their lives. My guest today is Sara Trad, a Lebanese hotelier and owner of Beit Trad, an idyllic and luxurious guesthouse in the mountains of Lebanon. She's also the co-founder of Skoon, the first of its kind drug and addiction rehabilitation center in Beirut. You'll discover on this episode that Sara has repeatedly buckled convention to choose directions that are right for her, even when those choices are at odds with what is expected or considered acceptable. At times, she has found those paths elusive or hard to see, but she trusted that in good time, they would appear, and she was proved right. Sara talks candidly about several career milestones and turning points, but for me, it's a major pivot in her personal life that resonates the most. I found this part of her story incredibly inspiring, courageous, and bold. As always, we're kicking off with one of the show's staple questions. If Sara was hosting a dinner party and could invite five guests, who would they be? Okay, so I didn't overthink it. I just like spontaneously wrote down who came to, to mind immediately without overthinking and especially without wondering if they would get along. <laughs> I'm not sure they would get along, which I usually would do for it. I mean, not, not overthinking that either. So I would invite Jalal al-Din Rumi. <laughs> Sting. Sting. Wow. Fanny Ardant. I don't know if you know her. She's a French actress. I do know her. Yeah. Barack Obama. Because I wouldn't want him as president, but I'd love to have him for dinner. And Christine Lagarde. It's an interesting choice. And I think with these lists, you, uh, you know, I don't think you have to think of it very much as a proper dinner party. So you don't think, will they get along? You just think of who you want to meet. So tell me a little bit, who was your first choice on that? Rumi. Why Rumi? Well, because he, he inspires me. He's the voice of love and moderation in our crazy, polarized religious world. And, uh, well, the world is not religious. We've made it religious. He has a very um, universal quality about him, and he transcends regions, and he transcends culture. And he's a lot of people's uh, inspiration, uh, regardless of where they're from. But, of course, especially from our part of the world, he resonates with a lot of people. He's someone I, I kind of follow and I would have loved to meet and... When I'm looking at things in life, he, there's always him and his um, and his way uh, that are in the back of my mind. So he'd be in the back of my dinner. If I, he'd be in the front of my dinner, obviously. I'm going to zoom in on a couple of uh, what I consider pivot points um, that I'd like to talk about, because as you know, this particular podcast series 
is looking very much at um, what people do when they're faced with a fork in the road. And I know that you've had two very clear uh, pivot points that I've noticed, and perhaps there are more that you can tell me about. The first one being uh, when you set up the the drug rehabilitation center in uh, Lebanon. Yes, actually, it, it is one of my pivotal points. Uh, the year 2000, I had just graduated as a psychologist from Paris. And I, like every graduate, I looked for a job. Uh, you know, sending like those motivation letters and and sending applications to places you want, but most, I mean, a few places you want and, and most of the places you don't really want, but you just want a job. Unfortunately, some people don't have the choice and you don't, sometimes you don't have the choice. So I ended up as a headhunter um, in Paris. I was dating a uh, a very nice person at the time, and he said to me, "You absolutely, you, you're completely depressed since you're you've got this job. You're completely depressed." I was an employee in a headhunting agency that was small, and the boss became one of my best friends. But I, all my wings were like, uh, you know, I had no yeah. more energy. It wasn't my your world. It wasn't my world, and I think I realized then and there that. I, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I'm not good. I'm very, um, how do you say, I'm very subdued and disciplined and I'll go into the job, but it's not my thing. And it it kills my creativity and my energy. Uh, it's a bit cliche. I'm sounding like a spoiled brat, but it's true. But I think you're, you have to kind of also at some point follow your instinct. And I think your instinct is quite strong, Sarah. I, I, I just realized that I, I, because of everything I was given in life, I needed to make a difference in whatever I was doing and not just take a job to take a job. Um, but making a difference is a big statement. Um, and then I had to live up to it. So I, um, so, so I left everything and I didn't know what I was going to. And, and then I realized that the healthcare and the mental health uh, environment in Lebanon. I was living in Paris at the time. I had been living in Paris for the past 13 years. And so I decided that if I wanted to make a difference, they didn't need another me in Paris. They, I wanted to go back home and set up a drug rehab and try and bring something to my society that would make a difference to people. And that's how I started. Had you lived in Lebanon up to that point, Sarah? Or had you I had just lived on one holidays? year, yeah. Okay. So I, I hadn't yeah. really. But I had gone back on holidays every year. Um, so I did feel connected, but I didn't feel, uh, you know, I, I was like a Parisian coming back to Beirut. Yes. Like a lot of Lebanese, actually. <laughs> yeah. That's the charm of our mix. Uh, so, yeah, that's how I started. And school. tell us about setting that up. And did you face a lot of obstacles when you began that? Were you criticized for it? No. The, well, I, I then I arrived and I, I, I felt I, we were like four co-founders. So I was finding my co-founders. It takes time and you have anxiety, obviously, etc. I didn't really know what I was doing because I wasn't specifically trained in drug rehabilitations. Right. And right. then we had it all set up. We had the program set up and we needed funding. So I said, okay, that's going to take time. It's fine. We're, you know, uh, we need at least funding for two years. We need to secure funding for two years because we're going into healthcare. And I call my first, uh, <laughs> the first person I called to fundraise, I needed $220,000. And I call him up and he says, 
I'm sending you the totality tomorrow in your bank. Wow. That was horrible. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, what do I do now? That was it. He, I, one phone call, I yeah. got the totality yeah. of the money. That's and, incredible. And I was stuck because then I had to do it. It was terrible. It was, yeah, I couldn't sleep. Yeah. So instead of, so you see my, <laughs> my problem was that it was going too fast, which yeah, it often yeah. does. It was when becoming it, a reality very quickly. It, yeah. it often does when it's meant to be. It just, things get together and just happen. Yeah, I agree on that. Absolutely. And the reason for opening it, Sarah, was because you, you had identified a clear need in, in Beirut and in Lebanon for this. I had, a lot of my friends were doing drugs and they had no place to go. Um, if you were a drug user at the time you had, or this drug re this rehab where you had to spend a year and a half disconnected from reality or prison or your home, right? Uh, there was right. no outpatient. So you, you, you couldn't continue your everyday life and deal with your drug problem. Um, and there was not, none of these teams were really specialized in addictions. In, in the meantime, we set up an addiction, um, uh, degree at the Jesuit University here at USG. Um, there was no, there's no degree in Lebanon either. I mean, there was nothing that enabled you to be specialized in addictions. And the center is still open now, right? Yes, it's still uh, functioning. It's still functioning. It's been 17 years. And it's an outpatient. That's amazing, Sarah. It's an, it's an amazing accomplishment. And is it an outpatient only facility? Yes, it's an outpatient facility. It's very important and for it's us drugs, to be outpatient. Yeah. It's drugs, alcohol, all kinds of addictions. Drugs and alcohol, all addictions, basically. We don't really do food. We do substances. And are you still involved in the day-to-day -day running of it? Or have no, you pulled I'm away not a bit involved in the day-to-day. -day. I uh, stopped the day-to-day -day in 2007, four years in. And I'm head of the board today. that you have another big passion, um, which is Beit Trad, which is uh, this incredible B&B in the mountains. Tell us about how that came about and what it is exactly. So the second turning point in my life was 2007, when I decided that I was not excited anymore to be managing Schoon. I love yeah. the, the project, but it's just that my everyday work was not doing it for me. So I quit. I got a job offer that I accepted. And then I also had the idea that, you know, um, co-founders should be able to, a founder should be able to leave his organization and it should be able to survive him. Otherwise, Absolutely. you haven't. Absolutely. Yeah. So I left in 2007. The job offer I had taken didn't, didn't go through. And I decided that, yeah, fantastic. I was now open to my new destiny, which I didn't know what would, what it would be. So you basically took a step back to see what would come next. Yeah. I don't know if it was a step back or a step <laughs> or, or jump into the, <laughs> into or a jump, a in jump into the abyss, a jump into the abyss, 2007, 2008, 2009, nothing's happening. Nothing. My calling wasn't, you know, all these, all my theories were like, callings yeah. and spiritual i don't know what yes, nothing was happening yes. nothing was calling your nothing. your roomy your roomy teachings were not uh, roomy was being not challenged coming, uh, everything was being challenged and i decided yeah, that yeah. i had to take my uh, so i'm gonna have to do something myself since nothing's coming to me so i'm gonna be proactive about it and i decided to move to new york 
without any project. Right. It was one of the hardest phases of my life. I'm laughing, but it wasn't actually right. funny at all. I moved to New York and I decided to go and do um, a manouche place, which is basically the dream of every Lebanese that gets off the boat because they crave their <laughs> manouches. And so, and yeah. there wasn't, a, so the idea was fabulous. I, be, I still think it's a fabulous idea. And I set up the project. So I raised a million dollars that are in my bank account. I set up the project. I find it, you know, the people I want to work with, which is quite complicated in New York because everybody's a shark and you're this white dove coming around. And of course, being of the, course. Arr. So what, was it was it a restaurant? Was it a it was a fast casual or? concept of manouche. I was right, calling it right. the Lebanese pain quotidien or whatever, and it was no. It's a very good idea. I'm. I'm Yeah. It is a very good idea. Yeah. We actually have one in Egypt called Manouche. There is one now that opened in New York. It's not exactly what I wanted to yeah. do, but he has but but it was a very good idea. The only problem is it didn't happen. Right. Okay. <laughs> it just it wasn't happening. And, I couldn't find the location. It wasn't working out. No. Yeah. Yeah. And instead of letting go and moving on, which I would recommend to anybody, I just stuck with it and said that I had to be persistent. You dug in. And I had yeah. to continue and I had to do this and I had to do that. It was, and I spent four years with, you know, g hanging on to this project that was not happening and that I could call my, I looked it up in English because in French you'd say my, um, my traversée du désert, that means my, my crossing of the desert. Yeah. Yeah. My dry period, my out of, in, yeah. out in the wilderness, all these, well, it was, Absolutely. that was it. It was, it was very, yeah hardcore because I was facing my wall. It wasn't happening. I was trying and it wasn't. But it's interesting, Sara, that you insisted on persevering with it. What, what made you so determined to keep going with it? The idea, because the idea was really good. It made the so itself. much sense. And then the real estate, it was New York. It was the right time before the real estate boomed again. But now it's bound. But we're talking about yeah. uh, 10 years ago. Um, 2010, my, yeah. Yeah, my locations, I had it right. You know, when you're like, but my idea is right. I, I know it's good. Yeah. And, I, and I could see it roll out. And I, 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 I really, I mean, I was there, but it just was <laughs> yeah, not meant yeah. to be. And then what made you, so what happened in the end? You, you decided to pull the plug? No, what, my mom passed away. So yes. 2013, my mom dies. And just my, this was the third turning point. Because yes, yes, and it was a very big, big thing. I remember it's yeah, a very big thing, and I don't know why it was. I mean, I do know why, but it was like I was rav I was r ravaged. No, I mean, I was not, I was annihilated. You were devastated. I was yeah, more than devastated. devastated. I was annihilated. Yeah, I yeah, was. Yeah, I had yeah. nothing. I didn't know what I was. I didn't know who I was called anymore. Yeah, your identity was being questioned. No, not even questioned. It was just disappeared. My ego was. I. I had. You talk about clipping my wing. I had no wings. No feathers, mm -hmm. no skin. I was just completely gone. The good thing, and I was gone and I was out, of this, and I was coming out of, what, 2009, 2000, 2007, 2000, what, six years of nothingness. So it, as they say in French, tu étais à plat. I mean, you were at your rock bottom. Rock, but like died. Yeah. And, and I had just moved my stuff to, from Beirut to New York in January because I was going to live there for the next 10 years because my project was going to happen. And my yeah. mom passed away in March. So I went back in May to New York to 
receive my stuff from off the boat yeah. and put it on another boat back. Isn't that strange? It was how crazy. That it was crazy. And then yeah, I yeah. I gave the money back to my investors. I that's it. New York was over. Yeah. And I came back it to was over. live in Beirut, which was not in my plans. I had just, I mean, I really, I wasn't seeing, anyway, it completely shifted my life. Yeah. And then I was in much worse nothingness than I had been before. I was like, yeah, I had no clue. I was up in the air and no clue where I was going. No idea. That's when those are the moments when it's a lot of anxiety because you're in nothingness, but then you're very free yeah. of everything else. When you're at such a low point and at such a rock bottom moment, it's also the time when you can be at your most open to other it's, things. Exactly. And, that, that's absolutely. And you're, you're so vulnerable that things come to you and, you know, you're open to it. And then things that you would have said, absolutely no. You don't say absolutely, absolutely. no anymore because anything is good. Not anything, but you're open. I had deconstructed my, the, the construction I had of myself was completely deconstructed. So you would have told me 10 years before to go open a project in that house, in a village, in the mountains of Lebanon, I would have thrown myself off the window. But you know, Sara, I think so much of it has to do with timing as well. I mean, you said 10 years earlier, it wouldn't have worked. You would have been too young, too restless. Uh, you wouldn't have considered that a project that you would have um, found exciting enough, maybe. That was my answer at the time. Is like after uh, Paris, Beirut, and New York, uh, Kfour, this village, f sounded very exotic. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So tell me, so you w had there been other B&Bs uh, set up in So it's in more Lebanon than a bed and breakfast time? because we have a full restaurant. It's like a guest house. There, yes, it was a big trend in Lebanon. And I, and I actually did not, that's not why I did it. I did it because we had that mountain house and I needed to save the house. And the house was falling I apart. See. And after my mom passed, I hadn't taken care of the house. I didn't even go back up and it was literally falling apart. Um, and someone said that houses die. Yeah, the, yeah the, I, I believe that. The vibes of houses die. If you For don't sure. Take care they of take them. the soul of their owners. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Of course. So I panicked and I said, I have to do something. And uh, so I set it up as a business because it was the only way to go about it. To fund the renovations. To fund and the, the renovation. keeping it going. Exactly. And to make sure that people would go. And how many rooms is it, Sara? How many rooms, how many guests can you ha have you have? It's nine rooms and I have two rooms and sometimes I rent mine sometimes. So it's, let's say, yeah. nine to 11 yeah. rooms. And is the clientele mainly Lebanese or do you attract uh, international people as well? So we've been open for two years and they've been uh, very different years for Lebanon. So my first year, I had a lot of foreigners um, and I did had very few locals. I had Lebanese that were living um, abroad or foreigners. You said that you have other projects now going as well, or are you focusing on Betrad? I'm focusing on Betrad and I'm hoping to, I'm working on developing the, that kind of uh, concept abroad. In what part of the world? Um, my next one, I'm for now, might be in the south of France. And what is the concept? How does it differ from other sort of uh, guest houses or boutique? First of uh, all, it's a small hotel. It's a Lebanese guest house. Right. 
So you'd import that concept to the south of France, for example? Yes. Uh, well, it would be Mediter- Mediterranean food, but Lebanese in the sense that it's us. It's our way of, it's our Levantine way of decorating. It's our Lebanese hospitality. It's our generosity, our ways of, you know, eating, yeah. living in that sense. And then yeah. now I have a team. So my, yani, Uh, my my the, my friend and decorator is Maria Ousemi and it would be her. Uh, my manager would be so. Our, our we have a DNA now and it would be that DNA yes. that we would be replicating. The other question I like to ask guests relates to what resonates with them culturally. They have to choose one book, one movie, and one piece of music that holds meaning for them. I love movies and I spend a lot of my time in movie theaters, but this year has been um, a disaster, obviously, for on that side and on many others, but on that side. And so I wasn't, I couldn't think movies, can you imagine? I had no movies coming to me, so I didn't insist either. And I books, I just thought of, not about, I mean, usually when I, if you, when you really like a book or if a book really inspires you, you kind of have a tendency to give it to, to people you love. So I was just thinking of books I've given. That's a great way of thinking about it because that obviously means that it meant something to you if you want to pass it on to someone. Exactly. So um, three books that I've um, given away through in different times of my life um, is you have Fountainhead of... Um, Ayn Rind. Ayn Rind, exactly. You have a book that has the cheesiest, title possible but that I love and was my introduction to Rumi which is the 40 rules of love of Elif Shafak which is the story of Rumi and Shams Tabrizi who is basically the dervish that enabled him to come to his own truth enabled Rumi to come to it's his a wonderful own book truth. it really is I'm I'm not a huge fan of Elif Shafak but there's something magic about that book and that something she was really able to transmit And a third book that I gave away, I think I bought like 20 copies this year and I've been giving it away because it's, which is Black Wave of Kim Rattas. And uh, for me, it sums up the famous question of how did we get to, to here today in the Arab world? She answers it in a kind of clear uh, page turning way. So it's a book I've. I like those that. are amazing choices. Uh, in fact, uh, the 40 rules of love, going back to that book, it's got a very universal quality to it because Rumi's message is universal, I think. But it's not and just the question the of universal, yeah. because a lot of things are universal. Um, it's I think it's it's relevant very much so today. It's something we uh, we all need to hear today, I believe. B- besides the fact that it's universal, it's also timely and it's a beautiful love. St- I mean, it's a beautiful love story. Absolutely. And I'm actually reading Black Wave right now. Um, and it's it's really a page turner, as you said. And it, it does answer a lot of questions about the state of our region um, in, a very de- in, a, in a very illuminating way. Um, but I really do feel we're, you know, that's another discussion, but we are certainly in a lot of, we have a lot of problems that we can't seem to surmount. But, and funnily enough, for people my age, so our age, um, We were we were young in 78. We were four or five years old. So there are so many things that we've taken as givens and never really questioned, never really wondered what was behind them, never really, you know, I mean, I, 
yeah, so I don't want to go into that, but I was in Saudi Arabia Absolutely. at the time. And there are things I took for granted or truths that were given to me that were actually completely not true. Uh, but I never questioned. Um, so it, yeah. was, that's, it was interesting because she was giving the other version of it. Absolutely. No, it's an interesting, very interesting uh, point of reference to look at the Saudi-Iran uh, axis, if you like, in the region. Let's talk a little bit about the other thing that you, you've done, which is, I think we can call it life-changing and certainly pioneering. <laughs> um, you're the first person I know in our region uh, who, as uh, somebody who is unmarried, to have decided to have children through a, uh, a sperm donor. I remember when I heard that through our families, um, the first thing I thought of was good for her. I am super proud of her. And, you know, it took a hell of a lot of guts to do what you did. And it's certainly not something that um, is common by any means. Um, and I was super, super impressed when I heard that. And I just thought that's really incredible. She, um, she's obviously wanted to have a child for a while. And, and why not? Why shouldn't she do it this way? Um, obviously, our region has a lot of, you know, prejudices and a lot of preconceived ideas about what's right and what's wrong. And, and I just want to hear a little bit about how you came to that decision, first of all. Well, the thing is, um, there was a double uh, equation, my age and my, uh, romantic, uh, my romantic ambitions. I, I was incapable of marrying or putting myself with someone that I didn't really get along with just to have children. I find that crazy. I find that very courageous and I was incapable of doing that. I don't know how women do it, but I mean, waking up every morning next to someone I don't like because I want to have children that at some point you won't like either is, is a lot of not likes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I never thought of it from that perspective, but yeah, I that's an that interesting way of looking courageous. at it. I, I, I'm, I'm not yeah, capable of yeah. doing that. So I really wanted to have children um, some people will tell you adding more children to the world that I did that my spiritual belief is that those are souls that are anyway going to come whether through me or through any other woman they're coming back on earth so let them go through me I, I have a cool life to offer them <laughs> how amazing <laughs> so in New York freezing your eggs and taking a sperm donor is not your everyday thing, but your every other day thing. I mean, there's sure. nothing fantastic about it. So I had a few friends there that had done it and pushed me. And my doctor also said to me, I was 39. And she's like, if you want children, you need to get moving. Wow. So I got, yeah, I, I, got, I got pregnant with a donor at 42. I, I, was, I was doing it for my own self. I also, that was my priority. I mean, I was comfortable with it. I was doing it and I was going to go to the end of it. And I was expecting to tell you the truth. My family supported me, but I would have done it with or without. Um, uh, I was expecting the, my, I, my Beiruti society to throw stones at me. And I was ready to get stoned. I mean, I'm not imposing it. And I understand yeah. that people feel threatened by that, especially women that are in marriages that they don't like, looking at yeah. me just not, you know, doing, getting my shortcut. Um, and what happened is that women were reacting like you. They're like, yes, go for it. And men and men, I mean, I, and men as well. Yes. Huh? Yeah. 
And I, that's amazing because I think also men sometimes feel that women are with them to have children, not for them. Yeah. So yeah, also yeah. it just made the whole, anyway, it was interesting. I'm not saying that, um, some people have attitude, some very few I've had, but I've been supported by 99.8% of them. And has it been mainly the younger generation that have been, or, or our generation and younger? No, I, the younger generation, obviously the gay and lesbian yeah. community, obviously, of that's obvious. Of course. No, yeah, I had yeah. my mother's 80 something year old friends. That all came up to me and said, yes, good for you. And we're so happy. That's and we're, incredible. We're trying to convince our granddaughter to do the same. I'm like, no, don't. <laughs> That's <laughs> amazing, Sarah. Fall in love. Yeah. That the older generation could see, the, see how it could work. That's amazing. No, because the older generation, I realized that past 70 or something, I'm just giving figures. Yeah, people yeah. reconcile with their truth, the social you know, the social appearances kind of fall. Their lives yeah. are, they look at their life from a certain distance and they become tr more true to themselves or anyway. And much more philosophical. I think, you know, yes. the, the older generation and I think our generation, you know, we've gone through a lot, uh, you know, the the, the, sp the Arab Spring, if you like, in, the, in our part of the world. I think everyone's reassessed the the what is normal and what is accepted and what should be accepted and what you're prepared to to live with and and I think there's a massive reassessment of that and there's a, a level of tolerance that people have now for yes. for other people you know yeah yeah and thank God for that I mean if that's the 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 the, the thing to come out of uh, of the last few years if then that's a very big positive as far as yeah, I'm concerned our, yeah 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 no absolutely our systems are still a bit stuck of course but that's going to take a while that's going to but take so how it. how has it been for you so you now have a um, a two year old girl and a four year four month old girl right I have two and a half and four months yes and how have have you just has it been a uh, has it been difficult to to be a single mother or have you just taken it in your stride that well I have to tell you there was one thing I was worried about before um I, I said to myself there are going to be those moments and I'm going to in those moments of let's say of panic or when you know you're fed up or when you're tired and I'm going to feel lonely and actually not at all. You don't feel that, yeah. Be not because I don't, because I'm not. I mean, first, they say it takes a village to bring up a child. Well, it does take a village. And when you're a single mom, you have a tendency to call the village in instead of keeping the village out. That's really interesting. Yeah, of course. Second, of when, course. when men and women know you're a single mom, they're, they're, they're there for you. That's right. You know, they yeah. have less of especially that I'm open, they're there. I really don't feel alone. Yeah, and third, yeah, when you yeah, have a child yeah. in general, people have, a, it, in the most rough uh, cities like Paris, New York, people will help because, you know, That's right. and especially yeah. a, a mother will immediately, um, in our, anyway, in our society here, a mother will immediately help you because she knows where you're at. And I, 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 mm -hmm. I, I have to say that I, I've realized that being a mother is there is this thing, you know what the other woman is going through. So you will be there for her. And then Beit Etrad is like the village. So my yeah, daughters are brought up by all the staff, all the guests. I have guests that shout at me like, 
I can't let your daughter do that. And I'm like, it's fine. She's used to the stairs. It's, no, no, no. She's not doing that on my watch. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. That's adorable. Yeah, so everybody's yeah, that's really, really cute. Out. So you told me as well that um, when you did this, um, you noticed that a few people around you were interested in the same idea and started to, to, to follow in your footsteps. Yeah, my, my um, doctor in New York, about that. my doctor in New York, he now retired, unfortunately. He's, last year he said to me, um, Sarah, now 80% of my patients come from you. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing. There are barriers like this that are being broken down around, around our, our region. And um, thank God, absolutely thank God. Um, uh, you know, and uh, it can only be a good thing, I think. Well, it it's the same barrier thing. that Rumi broke when he started dancing to, which was whirling to pray as a yeah, figure of yeah. prayer in a very conservative he, he was the the head of the ulama and he was uber conservative and he he was drinking and whirling I'm delighted and thankful that Sara was comfortable enough to share her story with me and with you here I'd like to thank you for joining me on this episode of What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad, and this episode was co-produced by Shirag Desai. If you've enjoyed it, please share the show with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or IMDb as it helps more people discover the show. You can also connect with us on Instagram. Just search for What I Did Next. We hope to see you again in two weeks' time. <laughs>